You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. So let's go to God's Word, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens." Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have, delivered your, you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel with whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have commanded my covenant or remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to, my peop- take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is God's word. Well, what an incredible portion of God's Word to dig into today. I remember it was probably about 20 years ago or so, and I went on a a men's weekend conference at a church, 
And part of the conference included this man who was participating that came forward to give his Christian testimony. And he shared about his Christian journey, how he came to know Jesus and put his trust in Christ. I don't remember most of these testimonies that I've heard over the years, but this one in particular I remembered very, very well. You know, he shared about how before he put his trust in Christ, he was obsessed and with work and success and wealth. He was a workaholic and disengaged husband and father. His identity and self-esteem were wrapped up in his ability to perform at his job and success in the business world, yet he felt unfulfilled and empty. And then he met Christ, and he realized that the answer to his deepest longings was not a not money or success, but the love of God in whom he had acceptance and security and significance. This encounter with the love of God changed his motivations, his sense of security. It changed his affection for God and others. He was a new and changed man. And then he said, after I put my faith in Christ, my, my business took off like it had never before. My, my income doubled in the year that followed and my company expanded but beyond my, my wildest hopes and dreams. And everyone in the room celebrated with applause at the work that God had done in his life. You know, maybe 19, 20 years old at this time. And I'm hearing this, and, and this is why I remember this testimony so clearly. I'm thinking to myself as I'm hearing this man, I'm thinking, would the testimony of God's love and forgiveness be just as celebratory for this man if after he put his trust in Jesus, his business crumbled, his employees quit, and he had to seek a second job just to make ends meet? Would he be admired by the men in that room if after he trusted God, he became a nobody in the business world? Would men walk up to him proudly and shake his hand if he had become the, the, the laughing stock among his colleagues after trusting in Jesus? I wondered that day what we were really celebrating. Was it this man's worldly success or was it the rescue of a sinner in need of rescue from God. I felt what needed to happen by, uh, in the screen behind him as he gave his testimony was the disclaimer, right? Results not typical. <laughs> I believe our Bible text this morning addresses the painful reality that is not the exception, but the common experience of people who put their trust in God. Failure, suffering, difficulty, doubt, pain, and confusion. I've experienced it in my own life, and I've witnessed it in countless others. The shock that comes when a person in their pain trusts in God, and then their life gets worse, not better. If we believe that trusting and following God will result in constant and consistent happiness, we will likely fail to see the better work that God wants to do in us through our pain. Our passage addresses this issue by bringing it to the forefront and showing us this movement through the story. In this first movement, we see the suffering that comes when our plans don't match God's plans. We see in the second movement how we often address our problems and our suffering. And in the third movement, we see how God addresses our suffering 
these movements are straightforward, but let's look at these in a deeper, deeper way, looking at God's word. First, we see the suffering, and we see the, when our plans do not match God's plans. I've mentioned it before, but if you and I would write our stories, we would never write suffering into them. We would avoid the, the pain. We would avoid the confusion and the disappointment. Things would work out the way we desire. Moses had returned to Egypt, and so far, things are going great. Chapter 4 ends with this very encouraging scene. Aaron and Moses have this terrific meeting with the leaders of God's people, and, the, and they tell the people what God has told to them, and the people worship God, repenting of their sins, uh, bow, bow their heads, and thank God that he has remembered them, and he is going to rescue them And then they live happily ever after, right? No. Just as it seemed that they were about to be saved, they were struck with a deeper suffering that they had ever experienced before. The Israelite slaves were tasked with now making bricks to build Pharaoh's cities and monuments. Straw was used and provided to make bricks with clay, mixing it with the clay, helping to better form the brick, making it stronger, easier to use. It also acted as a filler and a bonding agent that made it just easier to use. But now Pharaoh is saying, you get no more straw, but you have to make the same amount of bricks, twice as much work in the same amount of time. In taking away straw, but but requiring the same quota, was incredibly oppressive, incredibly evil and unfair. And in this first movement, there really isn't deep insight into these first several verses that we read in chapter 5. There is just the acknowledgement of pain and the cruelty of oppression. Sometimes life is hard, and sometimes life is really hard. And I don't mean to sound dismissive or trite, but life is difficult. And sometimes we don't have a reason for why it is. There are times when we're doing exactly what God wants us to do, exactly what he's asked us to do. We're being faithful. We're trusting in him. We're praying. We're making the hard decisions in order to do the right thing, and then the results are not what we expect. Sometimes we pray for healing and the cancer spreads. Sometimes we pray for peace in our marriage and the relationship suffers even greater. Sometimes we work hard for a job that we think would just be the perfect fit for how we are made and it goes to somebody else. Sometimes we reflect on the blessings that we have in life and we say, thank you God for this life that you have given to me and then we wake up tomorrow and we are struck with deep disappointment. That's why I'm never thankful for things because it just gets worse. (laughs) Sometimes we try to make lemonade out of lemons, but we're never given any sugar, and so we're just drinking bitter water all the time. I never liked that saying, right? Life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Well, you need sugar and you need water. It's not just lemons. So we're just done. We're just there sucking bitter juice. Now, I'm not trying to convince you that we should be sad and stay in a sad... I mean, happy Mother's Day, everybody. Did I say that yet? Happy Mother's Day. If you think life is hard, it's just going to get worse. Happy Mother's Day. But but this is what this beginning passage does, and, and, and I don't have this deep theological insight into this because I don't think there is meant to be one. But we are invited into the awareness of pain 
that we often have a difficult time making sense of. And I read this passage, and it is just not fair. And I can't make sense of it, and it's just confusing. And it invites us into this awareness of our limitations to control our life, to plan our life the way we want it to go, to create outcomes that fit into our agenda for the future that we want. And God says, you do not have that power. And that makes us feel very uncomfortable. Makes us feel very vulnerable, very afraid, very scared to be in a position where things can happen to us even when we do things right and we just can't make sense of it. The opening of chapter 5 makes me so uncomfortable because it doesn't seem right. The faithfulness of God's people who have suffered for 400 years results in greater suffering. They just spent chapter 4 hearing from God, receiving God's word and said, we will follow you. Thank you, God. We worship you. Thank you for listening to us. And life becomes even more bitter for them. This is when faith is met with conflict. What do we do when our faith is met with conflict? God says, I want you to be this kind of person. I want you to do these kinds of things. And we do that and it's met with pain. Unless we are prepared to rewrite the Bible, which I don't suggest we do, we are faced with this uncomfortable reality that those who rest in the promises of God are often met with circumstances in their life that they do not want. And this is not inconsistent with God's care for us. What is featured in the opening of chapter 5 is pure tragedy. The tragedy of Pharaoh's rebellion against God and his pride that consumes him. The, the tragedy of God's people being driven deeper into suffering at no fault of their own after enduring generations of bondage to slavery. And there are all sorts of problems in the world. And there's no need to convince you of such things. Open your phone and scroll through your news headlines. And you will soon grow despairing of what we see. It's just a little glimpse of what's going on this week. You hear the largest fuel pipeline in the U.S. shut down due to a cyber attack. Have fun paying more for gas tomorrow. I don't need to tell you about COVID-19. There's a genocide going on in Ethiopia right now. And apparently, just to keep you up at night... This week, there was a, a dead rocket plummeting from outer space to Earth, and we didn't know where it was going to hit. It could be your house. I heard last night it landed in the Indian Ocean, so we can rest on that part, and it will go in the ocean, become radioactive, and kill a bunch of wildlife. It's just, it's just bad. Things are bad. And just as the first movement reveals our suffering, this is what we're supposed to, we're just supposed to see this. We're supposed to just live in this reality of understanding that when faith meets conflict is not to be confused with God's care for us or lack of care for us. And just as this first movement reveals our suffering, the second movement reveals how we are prone to address that suffering. None of us want suffering. And few of us easily admit that we are suffering. 
because we are just, we want to avoid it. Oh, I'm okay, things are better, and you know. But consider how you're prone to address your suffering. Some are prone to sulk. You know what sulking is? Some of you have your masters in it. Sulking, you know, you become silent, right? Really moody. <laughs> I'm not going to call anybody out. I'll keep my eyes down so I don't look at you. The easiest thing to do, just complain about how miserable you are, how unfair it all is, how we're doing the very best that we can, and nothing ever happens to see, seem to go our way. Leave me alone. I just want to be alone right now in my misery. Some are prone to feeling guilty. You know, maybe this is happening because of the failures that we have accumulated in our life. Maybe we're not cut out for the life that God has given to us. Maybe you should have never done this in the first place, and you're just not good. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've let God down, and the reason why life is hard is because he just wants you to know how bad of a person you are. But maybe we're like Moses, and we ask that famous question, why? Why? Um, Moses really thought he was finally out of failure. He's living a good life. He takes things into his own hands. He fails to trust in God. He's a rebel on the run, and he spends 40 years in exile. God comes to him, reveals his good plan to him, convinces him he could trust in him, if you're Moses, I'm Moses, we're thinking we are on the other side of suffering. God has arrived and victory is here. And we see yet again that Moses is so typically human and so relatable to us. It's the most instinctive thing for us to do that when trouble comes our way is to ask, why is this happening? How does this fit into what you have said, God? You have promised rescue. You've promised your presence and your love. You said you would be with us. And as soon as we took a step in obedience towards you, things got worse. And so what we expect to happen and what actually happens when they don't match up, that leads to despair. It leads to confusion. It leads to doubt. It leads to conflict. And we question why things happen the way they do. When we look closer, we see that pain. We see that pain that, that Moses experiences, and we see what pain does to him and what it often does to us. It reveals our heart. Suffering brings to the surface the things in our heart that have been there all along and how we feel. Look again at verse 22 and 23, and I've highlighted some words in here to show you how often they appear and the emphasis on this passage. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, remember, this is what you told me to do, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses turned to the Lord. Now, what's going on? Is, is God there? Is he there? And he turns to the Lord and talks. This is a common Hebrew phrase that means Moses directed his feelings of his heart to God. And what did he say? This is on you, God. You should have known better. You shouldn't have done this. And I blame you. 
pain reveals our heart. And the pain and struggle that Moses is experiencing reveals his heart. And that is what God is after. Even though Moses feels he's on the other side of suffering, there's so much work that God is still doing in his heart that he's still reluctant to trust in God. He's still reluctant to trust in his promises and to walk with him even when life appears to be completely inconsistent with God's plans. It was C.S. Lewis who said, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. Moses can't ignore the pain in his heart. He can't ignore the pain that he's experiencing. And when God's people don't experience the immediate rescue that they hope to receive from God, we complain to God about God. When things work out, we get really excited. Moses and Aaron go to God's people and say, God has come to us and he, has, he will rescue us and he will take us out of slavery. And what do they do? They say, blessed be the name of God. They bow their heads and worship him. And when things don't go well immediately after, they criticize God for failing at his promises. Does this describe you in any way? When life is going good, you say, isn't God a good and blessed God? And when things are going bad, we say, where were you? There is no kind of faith that goes untested. There is no person that puts their trust in God that goes untested. The Bible compares this kind of testing of faith to the process of purifying gold and refining gold that must be put into the crucible of fire to bring about the impurities in that gold to the surface so that God may wipe it clean to purify our hearts. God is doing this with Moses and he does it with you and I. And he uses our struggles to purify us. And where God means to purify us in the midst of our suffering, Satan means to mock us in the midst of our suffering. Look at how this happens in verse 20. The Israelite leaders come to Moses and say, I hope God punishes you for this. Things were bad, but now they're even worse. We're probably going to even die. This is on you. And complaints just go up the chain of command. That's how it happens. The Israelite leaders complain to Moses. Moses complains to God. That's how it happens. That's how it happens in your family. (laughs) The youngest one complains to the older one. The older one eventually complains to you, and you complain to God. (laughs) That's what we do. We just go up the chain of command. Satan mocks us in the midst of suffering, just like these leaders do to Moses, and we often believe it. It's the same tactic that Satan uses in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that if you eat of this forbidden fruit that you will die? It sounds like God doesn't want you to be happy. Look at this fruit. It looks delicious to your eyes, doesn't it? It looks good for food. God wants you to be happy. Surely God wants you to enjoy life. Sounds like God is restricting you from the life that you've always wanted. I think you'll be fine if you do that. What Satan does in the midst of struggle is causes us to doubt the truth and promises of God. It cause, he causes us to doubt God's care for us in the midst of suffering. You know what that feels like. Life is hard and it causes you to wonder, are you going to be okay? Does God care about you? Does he really see your pain? Satan mocks us and sometimes people come along and mock us and say, look at what you've done. You've made things worse. I hope God 
punishes you for this. Suffering will often tempt us to think that God does not care as often as he says he does, that he cannot be trusted as he says he can be trusted. Suffering will cause you and I to turn our feelings to God and say to him, I thought you cared about me, but now I'm not so sure. Suffering tempts us to wrestle with trusting in God and believing that he's faithful. Suffering always tries to wrestle us out of the hands of God to get us to doubt, to get us to be confused, to doubt, to get us to question God if he still is the God he said he was when we first believed. God has his purposes, though, in suffering. As we clearly see in this passage, God uses hardship to further his purposes in our lives. God doesn't use hardship just to stand back and watch us pointlessly suffer. None of it is ever pointless suffering. We thought we saw Moses at his worst in chapter 4, but I think it's here that we really see him hit rock bottom. In chapter 4, remember, it is God that comes to Moses, and Moses gives five reasons why God should choose somebody else. And, we, and then God corrects him, and we say, well, Moses learned his lesson. But we didn't know that rock bottom hadn't been hit yet. It is here we see rock bottom. And we begin to see how God uses and addresses our suffering. It's not in the way that we use our suffering or address our suffering, but look at how God addresses our suffering. God seems to know something about weakness, about emptiness and brokenness more than we do because it is always in these moments he does his best work. If you realize that you have nothing left, like Moses does at this point, God is ready to do his best work in you. Moses hits rock bottom and gets to the worst place of his suffering. And what does God say to him? He says immediately after, he says, now you're ready to see what I will do. Do you notice that? Now you will see what I will do. In this whole passage, God is speaking about you, and Moses is speaking to God. And whenever God is using the word you, he always talks about it in the plural. He's always talking about his people and all this work that he's going to do with his people. But in this one instance, God says, now you're ready to see what I'm going to do with you. Now you are at a place that your eyes are open to see me instead of your pain. Because the only thing that can help you is me. The only thing that can give you the, the, the true acceptance, the true security, the true significance, it is not in the outcome of your life. It is me. And he says, now you're about to see what I will do. And God's, best, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And he will often wait until we get there. The place of total inability Can't tell you how many times in the last year or so I've met with godly men and mentors and they say, how are you? And I say, I have absolutely nothing left. And they say, that's really good. And I say, no, I don't think you heard me. I said, I have nothing left. And they say, that's a great place to be. And I say, are we talking to the same person? This is where God shines. This is where we are able to see what he's doing. And God, God's best work is described right here in verse 6 to 7. I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. To redeem is one of the most lovely and significant words in all the Bible. It means to pay the price, whatever price is necessary, to take possession of something that is at risk of transferring ownership to someone else. Say a family member dies and their property passes into possession of the state, a family member would have the opportunity and the right to redeem that property, taking possession of it with all of its assets and its burdens. And God tells us, you are enslaved. You are in, someone else is in ownership of you. You're in bondage to slavery. You are not able to do as, as good as good for you. You are you are incapable of, the, of living the life that I desire for you, but I will redeem you. I will pay the price to purchase you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. When the Bible talks of God's redemption, it's always in talking about it in a sense that the price that he is willing to pay to bring his people into his loving arms What are you willing to do, God, to be faithful to make sure that I am taken out of suffering and I am brought into relationship with you? And he says, now you'll see what I will do. We see it no more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to see the price that I will pay? I will give my own son, the son whom I love, to die for you, that will pay that price, that will redeem you from darkness and bring you into my marvelous light that you will be bound to me in love. We know the extent that, of, which, of what God would give to save his people. He gives his only son. And if he did not spare his only son, how will he not also with him give us all things? For us, our suffering becomes this real turn your eyes upon Jesus moment. To see what God has done for you, what he's doing in you. To see what he has promised to do for you in the future that has yet to come. Notice that God says, now, you're, now you will see, now you'll have the right perspective. When you see your complete limitations, when suffering strips you of all of your self-sufficiency, when it makes you so weak that all you can do is cry out, help, God says, now you're ready to see what role I desire to play in your life, to redeem you, so that you know when blessing comes to you, when your life is rescued, when you come out of this land and worship me in the land that I promised to you, you will know that it came about because of my strength, power, and unrelenting compassion for you. God will show his people that they, their rescue was in no part to their good. It was no part of their strategy or ability to manipulate blessing. It wasn't because they were able to control the outcome of their life, but it was because of the loving and unrelenting grace of God. The hinge of this whole passage is the first verse of chapter 6. Now you will see. Now you're ready to see what I desire to do. And at just the right time and at the right moment, when God has us right where he desires us to be, it is then he does his best work 
in us. And it's often our darkest moments. I don't like that any more than you do, but God knows what He needs to clean out of our heart. He knows what is in our heart. He knows what is good for us. Life is so difficult, and suffering is so real, and there are a whole host of problems. Take your pick of all the, 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 the mound of problems going on in the world today. What, what's, what's the problem? Education. It's a mess. Climate change. Disease. Political agendas, social unrest, racial tensions. And you likely have an order of priority of which is the worst. And all of our lists look different. You may have become a Christian fairly recently, and instead of getting better, your life has gotten harder. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades, and sometimes you think that life should be a little easier the more spiritually mature that you are, but it's not. And you say, what's wrong with me? I should be a lot further along than I am right now. Maybe you're thinking about becoming a Christian, but, but, but you're weighing the pros and cons, and you only want to become a Christian if it works out well for you, and you can predict that this will be better for your life than it is. But we have to reckon with the reality that God often reserves his greatest pain for those he loves the most. Look at Jesus. No matter what is happening to make our life difficult, God aims to renew our vision of who He is. Now you'll see, when God dismantles those idols, when He dismantles all of those sources of encouragement that we were depending on in our life, now we are able to see, with a renewed vision, who God is, what He has done, and what He means to us. Notice how Moses continues to refer to the Israelites as these people and this people. I don't want to pass through that too quickly. Moses has recently, we've seen, he has identified with the Israelite people as his people. He has identified the Hebrew people, these are my brothers and sisters. He was linked to them and bound to them by, by, uh, by heritage and purpose and promise and ethnicity and culture. And then God presents himself as the one who, these are my people, but now Moses stands a distant from them and saying, Look at what you did with these people over here. This people. And God corrects Moses and he says, these are not some random people that are hurting. These are my people. I am the Lord. And I made myself known to Abraham and I blessed him and gave him a promise. I was faithful to that promise and made and renewed that promise to his son and then his son after him and his family after him. The family of one has become a family of countless people whom I love. When they cry, I hear them. When they are mistreated, I see them. When they call out to me, I respond with good for them. God is telling Moses, these aren't some people and you are not some people. When you are going through a hard time in your life and suffering and feeling that you are insignificant and God has forgotten you, God reminds you, he says, you're not just somebody. You're mine. You belong to me. I see you. I know you. I care for you. And I have plans for you. And I'm using this suffering to bring about my purposes in you. And that is to draw you out of a worse life, a dark life, and into relationship 
with me where you belong, where you know my love, and that love never fails. This is how God uses our suffering. And Pharaoh is not the kind of person who's often in a position of letting people tell him what to do. Who is the Lord that you speak of? I've never heard of him. You're about to find out. What a foreshadow. Who is this God? Who is this God? I have never heard of his name, and why should he matter to me? God is about to show himself. He is the God who keeps his word. He is the God who feels our suffering. He is a God who brings us close into his presence. He is a God who will eventually lead us into our forever home. And if you are struggling, you do not need more willpower or a stronger work ethic. You need to see who God is. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust him, when life gets harder, not better, Look to the cross and the empty tomb. And let God open your eyes to see that he is a God who keeps his promises.